You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everybody to today's show. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Our show today is on self-medication and addiction and I'm very pleased to have with us Dr. Mark Albanese who has just co-authored a book with Dr. Edward Kansian, entitled Understanding Addiction as Self-Medication, Finding Hope Beyond the Pain, Behind the Pain. Dr. Albanese was born in Boston and graduated from Boston Latin School, also the alumni of Matt Damon, right? Uh, no, I think Matt no. Damon grew up in, in Cambridge, but I, I also went to Harvard College, and I believe Matt Damon went to, okay. went to Harvard College. He may have gone to Roxbury Latin, I'm not sure. All right. Um, he attended Harvard College and Cornell University Medical Medical College. He, uh, Dr. Albanese is certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurosurgery in general psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. In addition to his clinical, administrative, and teaching work, Dr. Albanese has undertaken research with a major focus on assessment and treatment of people with dual disorders. He has studied epidemiology, pharmacology, and group therapy. And his most recent area of interest has been studying um, people who. Uh, Experience DUIs. So, Dr. Albanese, welcome, and thank you for taking time out of a very busy schedule to join us. My pleasure, Mary. Thank you for inviting me. Could you begin by um, just talking a little bit about how you got interested in treating people with addiction and basically what addiction is? Uh, that's that's a uh, that's a great question. I, I actually tell people that I um, came into addictions not really uh, directly but uh, kind of uh, through a side door. Um, I was doing my uh, psychiatry residency training uh, at the Massachusetts Mental, Mental Health Center here in Boston, um, and uh, this was in the, uh, the the late 80s, early 90s, and um, realized that um, that really the, the most um, the most challenging clinical situations uh, in which I found myself, uh, for example, uh, you know, late at night on call, um, were typically uh, those situations that involved uh, people who did have uh, a mental health issue but had a mental health issue that was complicated by uh, an addictive disorder. Um, and so I became very interested in... Um, in uh, addictions in that context, addictions in the context of people who had um, psychiatric disorders. Uh, and in, in those days, uh, treatment for uh, both sets of disorders, mental health disorders and, and addictive disorders, uh, were really seen as, uh, they were seen as, as separate entities and treatment was, was, uh, was separate. Um, and, you know, both sides didn't really pay attention to what the other was doing too much. Um, but you know, I was confronted with the fact that, you know, in my real life clinical uh, experience, uh, the the the, uh, the psychiatric disorders that I was trying to assess and treat uh, were being complicated by uh, people using alcohol uh, and other drugs. So as a result of uh, as a result of that, uh, and with a, a great deal of skepticism <laughs> among colleagues, I actually. Uh, he has started to kind of study um, uh, addictions more directly. 
And over the course of the time when you first became involved with people with co-occurring disorders, we've really begun to understand addiction as brain disease, much like mental illness. Right. And, and I was wondering if you, in the evolution of the um, of our understanding of addiction, how what have you learned about that with somebody with co-occurring mental illness? Um, I, I I agree. I mean, I I think that. Um the, the good news is, you know, we've done, there's been just, uh, as, as you're alluding to, there's been a lot of research, uh, you know, during the decade of the 80s, 90s, and, and now into the 21st century uh, into kind of the neurobiology of um, the illnesses that we treat, the, the, the mental illnesses and the addictive disorders. Um, and I, I, I think that that's been a tremendous boost in, in, in terms of addiction, a tremendous boost uh, to, um, to to the field. Because for, for one thing, for example, um, medication treatments for the addictive disorders um, have been guided by understanding better what the underlying neurobiology uh, is. Um, so that has been... Um, not just in theoretical terms, but in very practical terms, uh, the, the, the elucidating of, or the, really the beginning of, of trying to elucidate uh, what, the, what the brain biology uh, is has been a real, uh, has been a real uh, boost. Um, I think what, you know, what those of us who, who treat people understand is that um, you know, addiction, the addictive process is something that really goes beyond, though, uh, you know what their neurobiology is, but is is very much a, about the you know kind of psychological makeup as well as um, other aspects of the person. And I, when I first started in this profession, the belief was that you, if somebody was experiencing depressive symptoms or symptoms of anxiety or or even symptoms of paranoia, that you would wait a year and see if they got sober. And at the end of the year, if they still had those symptoms, then they must have an underlying mental illness. Yeah, um, it's almost you know it's almost laughable now, except that um, unfortunately a lot of people who were treated during that period, I think, really were done a disservice because of that thinking. Um, uh, you know, in in uh, in my more um, negative moments, uh, I, I say that you know that was the kind of thinking that was developed precisely to not to not treat people, to not take care of people, because. Uh, you know, as, as clinicians know, uh, you, you, you cannot expect somebody to, um, to, to, to wait a year with, uh, depressive symptoms or, you know, addictive symptoms, uh, to try to kind of clarify, um, what's going on. Um, it's just, uh, it, it, it's, it's an unfair, uh, expectation. Uh, and the good news is we've learned that uh, really within a much quicker time, um, a week or two weeks, um, we have a much better, uh, we, we have a, a very good ability to, 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 uh, to tease out um, what the contribution of uh, psychiatric uh, disorders and addictive disorders is uh, in terms of assessing, you know, um, somebody who, who presents to us for, for treatment. Um, the title of your book is, is kind of catchy when when I'm thinking about understanding addiction as self-medication, um, finding hope 
behind the pain. And I can remember in the old days people talking about, well, they're self-medicating. They don't really have an addiction. And and that thinking has evolved as well. Yes. Um, this the, the book was really a, an attempt by um, Ed Kantian, who has been my mentor for about 20 years, uh, and myself to uh, really kind of um, explain in one place um, what 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 our field um, really does understand about um, how uh, addiction uh, relates to underlying underlying psychological distress and the person's ability to try to uh, cope with that uh, underlying distress. Uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, nowadays it, getting into this either or um, is something that I think we try not to do. You know, this is somebody who has a psychiatric disorder and is, uh, is, is only using substances in relation to that, or this is somebody who has a, an addictive disorder and, you know, once that's in control, the depression will go away. I think what we understand now is that, um, is that more often than not, somebody actually has um, more than one disorder. Uh, you know, more often than not, it's depression and alcohol dependence or, you know, opioid dependence and bipolar disorder. Um, and that uh, they interact in a way uh, that can be, uh, have a negative effect on, on the opposite disorder. Um, and similarly, you know, getting adequate treatment um, for both of the disorders really uh, helps improve how people do um, in, in both realms. Um, and and in, in the book, you know, we, we explain how um, initially uh, in the face of psychological distress, um, somebody might find that um, a substance, alcohol or cocaine or uh, opiate pain medications, might be an appealing way of dealing with the distress. Um, but unfortunately for so many people, uh, you know, it, it's just it's, it's not a good long-term solution to their to their uh, difficulties and uh, can take on a life of its own and then further complicate uh, the picture, in, you know, including uh, their underlying psychological distress. Well, and in most times what our culture does is reinforce that, well, you know, if I've had a bad day at work, have a couple of drinks to unwind at night, or um, if I have any kind of pain at all, I should run to the store and get something to kill it, or I should call the doctor and immediately get something to kill it. So, our, I mean, we get bombarded with advertisements. It's just part of our culture that don't feel any pain. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great point. In fact, I, I frequently say to, to both my patients as well as and I do a lot of what the time I spend is, is teaching and supervising. And, you know, as I tell colleagues as well as patients, you know, uh, people with addictions really represent kind of an extreme within our society. I mean, it is an extreme, but it's part of uh, the continuum, as, as you allude to. You know, you can't watch... Uh, you can't watch television at night during prime time without hearing that, you know, this pill uh, will fix, you know, and then fill in the blank, um, you know, sex drive, uh, weight loss, 
whatever. So you're absolutely right, Mary. I, I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, our, our patients who develop addictions um, cannot stop at just kind of uh, casually uh, using a substance, but it certainly is part of the um, message that we all experience uh, culturally is that, uh, you know, ingesting something will make it all better. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, too, as part of our culture. My daughter's 23 and has impacted wisdom teeth, and she went to a dentist for a consultation, and she just went for a consultation, and she left her a pres- with a prescription for Ativan and um, Oxycontin. Right. And it's like I said to her, go somewhere else. I don't want you going to him. You know, <laughs> he's giving out those kind of meds for a consultation. Forget it. But that's and so people think, well, the doctor gave it to me, so it must be okay. You know. Right. Yeah, I think that that's part of the danger of. Um, you know, we've seen a real. Inc- I mean, the good news is that in terms of substances of abuse, you know, over the last ten or fifteen years, we've seen some real. Um, We've made some real progress. I mean, you know, initiation of use of a lot of substances, cigarettes, for example, has gone down markedly. Unfortunately, we've we've seen a an increase over the past few years in use of prescription medications. Uh, and I I think that you're right that there's a um, there's this sense that well, you know, a doctor is prescribing this, it can't be a problem, and um, you know, unfortunately, I, I, you know, the, the doctor prescribing doesn't necessarily have the full picture of what's going on uh, for somebody, uh, and so it doesn't. It's it's just because the doctor prescribes something doesn't, or it's or it's a prescription that doctors do prescribe prescribe even if somebody has gotten it, you know, other than through a doctor. I mean, there's no built-in, you know, safety mechanism just because it is a prescribed medication. Right. I know that I certainly intake a number of people who believe that their marijuana use really helps their ADD, you know, and really finds that they can calm themselves down and clarify things if they just smoke a couple joints. Right. You know. Yeah, I mean, that goes along with, the you know, this notion that, um, you know, if I ingest something, it'll it'll get better. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, particularly with, with marijuana, I, I think um, – you know, it, it, it really has the potential of um, of, of uh, adversely impacting people, particularly their cognition, in a way that they might not even appreciate. I've certainly seen a number of patients who, when they finally kind of had convinced themselves they needed to back off on the marijuana use, uh, noticed that um, that they really, in fact, were thinking more clearly. So, and in terms of the of your book. Um, hope behind the pain. What? How do you find hope behind the pain? <laughs> you know, I think that in some ways, um, that might be the ultimate message that uh, you know both Ed and I would want to convey, which is that um, you know we do see people um, get better, and um, that's I think how <laughs> I guess that's how we define define the hope is. Um, you know, despite everything you read and all the trends that we're, we're familiar with, that when you actually sit in the room uh, with somebody who's got an addiction, um, y- you actually watch them over the course of not just a session, obviously, but, uh, you know, days, weeks, months, 
uh, you really do um, observe uh, a, 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 a a significant number of people make progress in terms of getting their lives back and letting go of the substance or, pro- or, or behavior that they're addicted to. And we'll be right back to talk more with Dr. Mark Albanese on uh, addiction, self-medication, and recovery. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, and we're talking with Dr. Mark Albanese about addiction, self-medication, treatment of addiction, and one of the things we know is that a lot of people will get sober on their own. Uh, A lot of people are able to lose weight on their own and maintain their weight, and the people that come in for treatment, the people that we see, often tend to have more complications as a result of their life experiences. I I know that certainly trauma has a lot to do with, with addiction for women and, and for men as well. Um, you know, depression, anxiety, all kinds of things lead into addiction. And, and when you're talking about addiction as self-medication, can you just talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, what what you said really is um, is what this concept is about. Uh, in, in, you know, very well and succinctly said, Mary, which is that the people typically who get to our doors, those of us who are, you know, tr- you know, treating, um, uh, you know, those of us who are treaters, clinicians, 
those are the people who don't have, for the most part, um, kind of s- straightforward, uh, simple um, uh, problems. Uh, you know, they're the people who do have much more complexity um, to their lives in terms of of of, of uh, complexity of, of problems. Um, so, you know, really, really self-medication kind of, this is what, um, um, in, in some ways, this is what the, the notion is referring back to, which is that um, frequently, um, you know, people with uh, addictions uh, suffer with um, psychological uh, issues, you know, whether it's truly another, you know, full-blown psychiatric disorder like major depression or bipolar disorder, or perhaps it's it's not something that you, you know, can attach a diagnosis to, but uh, they have high levels of kind of, you know, anxiety, depressive symptoms, um, so there's a psychological distress. But then there's really a host of other, uh, you know, um, uh, complexities that get added to the mix, difficulties in human relations, uh, difficulties in uh, self-esteem and and, and how they perceive themselves, difficulties in self-care. And so uh, frequently in in the context of these these difficulties, um, what somebody can discover is, well, gee, you know, if I, um, if I drink, I can get a handle on things and I can function. Or, you know, if I use heroin, um, I am, I could just, I can, I can be, I can be normal. So, so yes, in, indeed, um, uh, for a, a big segment of, of the people, uh, out there who, who suffer with addictions, it's not simply, um, that that they are you know kind of hooked on alcohol or or cocaine. It's um, uh, that they're dealing with uh, the the addiction uh, in in the context of a host of, of of other problems that they might see the addiction as uh, initially um, a way of, of of dealing with. Well, and I think the other thing in terms of self medication. I know different cultures use alcohol in different ways. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, and, you know, alcohol was part of every major event. I mean, it was a big part of grieving. Using alcohol was a big part of grieving. Getting drunk at funerals was acceptable. It was an acceptable way to deal with your grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to nursing school with a, with a woman who was a Mennonite who had absolutely no point of reference when it came to alcohol. So, you know, part of... Um, you know, this whole process is, is that we learn by what we see around us. And, uh, you know, if my parents are smoking pot, then it must be okay for me to smoke pot. And then what that does to my developing brain or the fact that my parents are smoking pot and, oh, by the way, the neighbor molested me while they were stoned, you know, it, it, it all kind of gets very complicated. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, uh, it, it, it reminds me that there are risk factors to using substances. That's kind of what we've been talking about this afternoon. You know, if I've been traumatized, you know, if I have a, you know, a bipolar disorder, if I um, don't like myself, you know. Uh, so there are definitely risk factors. Um, there are also protective factors. You know, if, um, 
my if I'm a if I'm a uh, a young person and uh, the adults in my life um, are uh, respectful of what they put into their bodies, uh, if my peer group uh, is is um, careful about what they do, um, you know, if a family eats dinner together. Um, uh, you know, there's evidence that if a family goes to religious services together, I mean, these are things that will actually um, make it less likely um, that um, um, uh, that I will, uh, you know, that, that I'll uh, uh, take a chance on using addictive substances. And a lot of times, which I think um, kind of stymies us, is that the people that we're treating, they're their substance use is seen as a solution to them, and we view it as a problem. So there's this inherent discrepancy between what they're doing and how we're perceiving it. Yes, uh, and I think that, you know, that's an excellent point because I, I think uh, people who treat addictions day after day um, are probably more likely to understand that, but we interface with uh, you know, the rest of society that doesn't get that part of it. Uh, and I think it, um, certainly in terms of treatment uh, and understanding, you know, we use the, the uh, terminology now um, uh, about you know, stage of change, which really gets at where is a person in terms of their relationship with the substance of abuse or, or the, the behavior, uh, the, the addictive behavior. Um, are they at a point where they're ready to, to, to give that substance or, or behavior up? Uh, do they need to be, you know, do they need to spend a little more time, you know, being motivated to give it up? Um, but it is something that we're asking people to give up. It's something that they are in um, a relationship with. And so um, you don't readily uh, replace a relationship in somebody's uh, life. So you really kind of have to understand that if we're going to take away this relationship, what are we going to put in its place? And, and you hope that, um, you know, it's really a variety of things that take the place of the, uh, of, of the substance, uh, starting with other, you know, human relationships, uh, you know, the 12-step fellowship, uh, relationship with counselor, relationship with uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, other, you know, family. There are many contributing factors to recovery, and I think sometimes um, I know it's my belief that our profession gets um, very short-sighted in terms of there's one way to get sober, and that's through the 12 steps, when, in fact, there are many ways that people get sober. And that, if anything, I think we need as a profession to be a little bit more broad-minded and offer a menu of, of things. You mentioned pharma, pharmacotherapy, which um, I'm not sure everybody takes advantage of. You know, we have Camprol and Vivitrol and um, other medications that are very effective. Yeah, I think that um, without doubt the um, medication treatments are underutilized. Um, again, the good news is more utilized now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. And also the good news is, is that there's, there's more to choose from. Uh, so they really, when, when we're talking about the meds alone, there's more of a menu uh, to choose from. Um, and as I mentioned uh, when we first started talking, 
the, the, um, the neurobiology has done a lot, understanding the neurobiology has done a lot to help with the, um, with the medication uh, development. Um, you know, I, I think that really it, it's, it's, um, it, it's a matter of kind of continuing to educate uh, at least partly it's a matter of continuing to educate um, our, our colleagues uh, in, 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 in health care, uh, patients themselves, um, the, the, the people in the, in the lives of the people that we treat. Educating folks and continuing to do so, um, that you really do have to understand the, the disorders as um, you know, medical disorders uh, it, 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 thus, that there is a role for medications, as there's a role for a number of other interventions. Uh, but, I, but I think because there's still that tendency in our society to just not, you know, I think a lot of people don't quite want to buy into that notion that, um, you know, doctors treat diabetes, they treat, you know, high blood pressure, they treat depression, and you know what? They treat opioid dependence as well. Um, you know, one other thing I w- would add is that I, um, I really don't, and, 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 and Ed and I, you know, make this point in, in the book, I'm not happy to stop at um, getting people to use the medication interventions uh, more, although that's, a, you know, that's a bit of an, amb- <laughs> an ambitious undertaking. I, you know, really a lot, of the, a lot of the time I spend is helping people to understand how a medication really does fit into uh, a treatment approach for, for somebody. Um, but I think, you know, at the same time, we as a field, I think addiction, you know, one, of, one of the nice things about addictions is um, I think as a field we were, you know, have been uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak, uh, in terms of uh, understanding uh, the other aspects um, of of um, of people's lives, the um, you know the mental aspect um, and and the spiritual aspect. So um, I, I want to see us continue to um, you know increase the menu of uh, of 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 the the, the non medication, the more psychosocial services as well. And we'll be right back to talk more with Dr. Albanese about. Self-medication, addiction, and finding hope behind the pain. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. 
Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. In my introduction of Dr. Albanese, one of the things that I talked about was that he's recently done some research on people who have um, reoffended in terms of driving while under the influence. And I think that this group of folks presents the biggest challenge to our profession. I know for alcohol and drug abuse counselors, they're the ones that have to kind of sign off that this person is okay, they're not okay. And, and there's no litmus test. There's no blood work you can draw on somebody to say, okay, this person is never going to drink and drive again. And I'm just wondering what you found in your research. Um, yeah, yeah, I t- got interested uh, in this population as I really, as I, as I increasingly understood the public health impact of um, of people who um, who uh, really re- reoffend. So, so people who have been arrested and convicted once and then go out and do it again and in some cases again and again uh, and again. Um, you know, there, there's a um, uh, injury is uh, one of the leading causes of, of death in our society and motor vehicle related uh, injury, uh, particular, particularly alcohol related motor vehicle uh, injury um is is a big portion um of that so um my colleagues and I got interested in, in it for for that reason as well as some other reasons and um we started to think about uh the population the the DUI population um as as a um as as really a recidivist alcohol dependent population you know which it is in in in, in this population, virtually everybody um, has um, an alcohol disorder. Uh, it wasn't just that they happened to have the, you know, quotes, misfortune, close quotes, of, of being arrested one night uh, after, uh, you know, leaving the, leaving the pub. So um, we started thinking about this as a, um, as, as a, a, a recidivist alcohol-dependent population. And as you and I were talking about before the break, um, you know that difficult to treat um, alcohol population uh, is difficult to treat largely because of um, what we call the, the comorbidities, the other the other disorders uh, in their in their lives. Um, and you know we know from the dual diagnosis literature that psychiatric uh, disorders are, are higher in, in that kind of population. So we started to wonder if perhaps. Uh, there wasn't a higher prevalence of um, of undiagnosed psychiatric disorders uh, in this DUI population, and perhaps the, um, the the fact that these were undiagnosed disorders and that they were uh, as a result uh, untreated uh, might be contributing to uh, the ongoing um, the ongoing uh, behavior. Uh, Especially since over the last 20 years, the laws have gotten stricter, 
uh, and um, that the, the 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 increased strictness of the laws has actually improved the outcomes in terms of of alcohol related motor vehicle fatalities, but. Um, there's been really a plateau in that improvement over the last 15 years. So we wondered if that plateau um, had something to do with, um, you know, underlying uh, psychiatric disorders and psychological distress. So we've um, recently uh, looked at um, uh, that uh, recidivist DUI population and found in uh, one of our uh, treatment programs here in Massachusetts that, in fact, there is a significantly higher level of um, uh, psychiatric, uh, you know, fancy word is comorbidity, but co-occurring disorders. Um, so, you know, everything from bipolar disorder to um, to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, to other mood and anxiety disorders um, are, in fact, elevated uh, in this group. And more often than not, these are not people who have come to the int- attention of mental health uh, caregivers. Um, is everyone usually assessed for a co- comorbid disorder when they enter a DUI program? Uh, no, not formally. Um, that's that's a great question because that's hopefully what this is. Uh, you know, now that we've established the the high likelihood that there are these disorders. Um, our hope is to 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 now go on and uh, assess regularly and start to treat to see if perhaps we can have some effect on the outcomes. So so really, no. You know, um, my experience is that that, the, that these programs have uh, really good um, clinicians who themselves know that um, you, you know that they're dealing with more than um, uh, substance use disorders. Um, but their mandate is to not, uh, you know, they do not have a, a mandate to re- assess for, uh, and certainly do not have a mandate to, uh, you know, treat what else is, is going on. So, in fact, it's been, um, you know, as, as I've, you know, gone around speaking to, to, to people who provide services uh, for the DUI population, um, you know, the, the people in the trenches, they, they they were not surprised when we showed them uh, the results of our study. Um, in fact, more often than not, they've been frustrated by um, feeling like they really weren't um, getting at all uh, that was um, potentially going to affect uh, the outcomes of, of, of the people um, that, you know, that they were taking care of. Well, and the other, I guess, kind of social thing is that most people get mandated into addiction treatment when they have a DUI, but they don't get mandated into mental health treatment. That's correct, yeah. You know, so that just by default, some of that stuff isn't going to get picked up. Right. Um, To kind of go back to the, we were talking before about the comorbidity, and um, I know when I first began in this profession a long time ago, um, when people would come in and they were under the influence and we do an assessment, we would ask whether if they ever had a suicide attempt or if they, um, you know, and we always say, well, are they under the influence or are they not under the influence? And, and it used to be that people used to think that if somebody was under the influence, then you really didn't have to worry that much about them in terms of their suicidality. And I'm wondering um, what your experience with that has been. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a really great question. I don't know that there's really been much. Um, I, I, I think when we used to ask that, uh, it. Uh, uh, I don't know that we had much grounds for asking it. 
I, I don't know that there's been much research that, that shows um, that, in fact, we don't have to worry less. But, in fact, you know, clinically speaking, we, y- you have to worry. <laughs> you know, we, we know that one of the major risk factors for somebody actually completing a suicide, uh, perhaps, the, the, perhaps the biggest risk factor is, um, is, is a substance abuse, um, is, is a substance abuse history. And, in fact, um, you know, while somebody is more likely to be impulsive, uh, in, in, in terms of, um, trying to kill themselves, uh, and being successful, um, you know, when they're, um, you know, when they're using, um, you know, so I guess what, what I, what I want to say is that, that we, we know that people are going to be more impulsive while they're actively, uh, using, um, so we absolutely have to, you know, have to take that into account, um, but but there's there's also some data that suggests that a you know a history of um, of substance use um, it might also just elevate the likelihood that somebody is going to uh, ultimately complete um, complete a suicide. Um, but but I think you know a, a suicide history um, that is you know in in somebody who say for example has a um, uh, a major, uh, you know, chronic uh, um, mental health condition uh, and, and a co-occurring addictive disorder. Um, you know, that's you absolutely have to take that seriously, and um, you really can't console yourself that well. You know, um, uh, it was only done when they were, um, you know, when they were using because. Um, you know, people certainly relapse, and uh, under the influence uh, where kind of judgment and impulse control go out the window, um, you know, uh, people uh, can can be very successful at, at killing themselves. So, uh, you know, just historically knowing that people are less likely to do it um, when they're um, under the influence, is, it's, it's helpful information to have. Um, but in light of a history of, of suicide, um, you know, those are people at high risk who've tried before, no matter what the circumstances, uh, they're, they're more risk at risk of trying again. Well, and I know that for a lot of folks who, um, who are listening and um, have had someone who has attempted suicide or who has successfully, unfortunately, uh, committed suicide, that oftentimes people are left feeling like, well, could I have done something different? Could, um, you know, did I do anything to contribute to to what, what is going on? And I think with addiction, we find in all areas that it just ravages the people around the person who's who's actively addicted. Yes. Um, that's part of the, um, you yeah, know, the, the, the um, yeah, the kind of web of destructiveness um, that that gets um, that gets set out there. Um, you know, I mean, it'd be a very different matter if uh, the addictive process um, just affected um, uh, you know people individually, but um, in in reality, um, these processes um, affect um, you know really everybody. Uh, who comes in contact with somebody um, who has an issue, which, which is why um, I think more and more we understand that the um, 
the the assessment of people with addictions, the treatment of people with addictions, um, you know, really has to um, really has to involve um, the other people in um, in the in in in, in in the life of the person, um, you know, with the addiction. Uh, you know, I think uh, t- too often, um, you know, when, when, when you and I first started in this business, it was really about, it was all about that dyad, you know, you know the, the treater and the person being treated. And uh, I think now we have a much bigger sense of uh, how, um, you know, how the person being treated, you know, impacts on the people around you know, her or him, uh, and uh, how we need to pay attention um, to that in terms of our assessment and then in terms of how we um, develop a treatment plan. And how those people can be part of the solution and be a big part of someone's recovery. Exactly, right. And we'll be right back with our final segment with Dr. Albanese. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. And uh, over the course of the last 20 years, the prognosis for people who have uh, substance use disorders has certainly, I think, improved. And in your book, you talk about finding hope um, behind the pain. And um, could you just talk a little bit about the hope and how important hope is for people? And yeah, um, that's a great question, uh, Mary. I think that, um, as I, I think, like I said at the at the top of the broadcast that, uh, you know, if there was one thing I really hope people, uh, there's the hope again, <laughs> if there's one thing I hope people take away from this, it's uh, that notion of, uh, uh, of, of hope. Um, and, you know, wh- where do I, you know, how do I um, remain hopeful? Uh, and, uh, you know, at one point you and I were talking about, uh, well, at least I, I was kind of tr- trying to, t- you know, make the distinction between hope and, 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 you know, kind of blind optimism. I mean, you know, my hope is based on, um, you know, observation, which is, you know, really in, 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 in many areas. You know, one is, is it probably, I guess the most important is the observation over a couple of decades of, of, you know, meeting with people and sitting with people, uh, and, and, um, watching them, 
get their lives back together and, and watching them, uh, you know, kind of take, take their lives back from an addictive process um, and, and stay, um, you know, in recovery. Uh, and for those people where, um, you know, they, they have a slip or, or a relapse, um, you know, getting back into recovery and, and, you know, maybe doing it more quickly um, and, and, and more securely the second time around. So, you know, that's one of the places where, um, uh, where, where I derive hope. And I, I think it's important that, you know, that, 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 um, that, um, that people hear that because, you know, if you're in the, you're a family member or, um, a significant other of somebody who is, uh, struggling with, um, an addictive de- disorder, and if that's maybe your only experience with it, uh, it can be, you know, very frustrating and your sense could be that, uh, you know, nobody gets better. Uh, in fact, um, at times I felt that, uh, one of the reasons why perhaps we can't get more people interested in, uh, treating the addictions is because, uh, too often their only experience uh, with observing the addictive process was in those people. Uh, perhaps it was a, you know, a loved one, a parent, or, um, you know, maybe it's, it's, a, it's somebody in healthcare training whose only experience with, uh, um, with the addictive process was watching people, you know, come into the emergency room time after time after time, and they never had the opportunity, uh, you know, to, to sit in an office like mine where really the people coming in uh, over and over the people you know I've seen for years who are who are um, you know coming in talking to me about the the you know kind of the the, the, uh, the you know the, the improvement and and how their life has become has become better and and um, and fuller so um, it's it's those interactions that give me hope it's the fact that you know we have more treatment options now uh, you, you were alluding to this earlier you know we have more treatment options now than we ever had. Um, we have more um, medication treatment options. We have more non-medication treatment options. You know, these, these, are, um, these are treatments that have been, you know, tested out in clinical trials and have found to be, um, you know, uh, real, you know, legitimate, you know, treatments that um, affect the outcomes. Um, and, and then, you know, beyond my own clinical experience, you know, I, I see the kind of the data that, um, you know, that comes across my desk every, every day, really, uh, looking at, and I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, you know, we have made inroads in, um, uh, in smoking in, in, in this country. Uh, I just read something the other day that basically said, you know, this is the, you know, we, we've gotten to the point where few, fewer people are smoking now than, um, than ever have uh, before. Um, so we've made um, we've made progress there. I mentioned that you know the good news with the DUI data are, is it's you know since the mid '80s um, there's been a, a drop in motor alcohol related uh, motor vehicle fatalities. So um, you know I think there were a lot of real solid reasons uh, to continue to um, uh, to be hopeful. Um, and it's not just you know me kind of um, sitting here uh, you know kind of <laughs> waxing poetic about it. 
Well, and I think the other um, kind of, uh, as our profession has matured, we've understand that recovery is really a process, and it's not just putting down a drink or a drug or a medication today and saying, okay, that's it, I'm never going to do it again. For a lot of people that we see, it's a process. And yes. That and, and that we have to be able to find the hope in that process, that, okay, well, maybe they only drank one night on the weekend, or maybe, you know, this time they didn't drink and drive. Or, right. you know, beginning to see little changes that add up to big ones over time, and that it's, it's not this dramatic um, aha. Yeah, you know, that's an excellent point, and I feel like um, – more often than not, when a patient comes into my office and, uh, you know, has that downtrodden look uh, and, you know, has to tell me that they, you know, had a slip or a real honest-to-goodness relapse, um, I think that, you know, maybe the two kind of most important things I can do are, number one, to not, um, you know, to not be judgmental. Because as I say to the patient, you know, the, the, I cannot be more judgmental of you than I know you are right now in your own head. So that's number one. Number two is to reflect back to them uh, that, well, let's look at the process because, you know, how was it this time compared to two years ago? And invariably, this time is nothing like that. You know, they came right back in, you know, got right back on the medication, you know, got to a meeting, spoke to their counselor. So I think that, you know, um, frequently our job is to, um, you know, is to really uh, boost the, the hopefulness of um of the of you know of our patients um, because they can very quickly um, get down on themselves and uh, become downtrodden and uh, and and despair. Well, and I think it's important for us to to do that with our colleagues as well. I know at Westbridge we treat a lot of people who who are pre, pretty pre-contemplative about having a mental illness or a substance use disorder or they're ambivalent at best, and staff can can really fall back into that old way of thinking in terms of. You know, they're not doing what I want them to do. They're still using, you know. Um, they're, then it kind of spirals down into, um, well, you know, they're, you know, they're bad people, and it just kind of spirals on down to that really negative place. But the reality of it is people are doing the best they can with what they have, and oftentimes people, we want them to stop drinking but, or, or using other drugs, but they haven't made a decision to do that. We've made the decision, but they haven't. Right. So we get very frustrated because we're thinking, okay, this person has to be abstinent when the person's really thinking, like, I just want my job back or I just want to get my family off my back, you know? Yeah, I think that you're, you're right. I, I, you know, a, a lot of what I do in any given day, I mentioned I teach and supervise, and um, as as part of that, I think that, um, uh, you know, maybe the, the most important um you know, thing I do in that regard is um, support uh, colleagues who are um, working with people who are more contemplative or even uh, pre-contemplative, because that is very challenging work. You know, I I, uh, I meant you know we've talked about the DUI uh, work that I've done and working with the recidivist population. Uh, one of the things, the one of the in- innovations that we made was to separate. Um, for group therapy, the people who were contemplative, pre-contemplative, from the people who were in preparation action in, 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 in further along, you know. And, and um, 
uh, and we switched off one set of counselors worked with one group, you know, for one uh, period of time, and then they switched and worked with another group for another period of time. And uh, I could always tell when I walked in the room which counselors were working with which group because the the the, the counselors working with the contemplative, pre-contemplative people looked much more <laughs> harried and ragged and definitely needed a lot more support uh, than those people who were working with folks who had already convinced themselves that they needed to give up on alcohol or at least to you know, drastically cut back and, and drink and, and not drive. I know. It's, um, you know, it's, it's just great that we have all these new frames of references and new treatment strategies. Where could people find your book, Dr. Elton? Oh, yeah. So the title is um, Understanding Addiction as Self-Medication, and uh, the, the subtitle is uh, Finding Hope Behind the Pain. Um, and uh, the, uh, my, my mentor, Edward Kantzian, uh, it's K-H-A-N-T-Z-I-A-N, uh, and I uh, co-wrote it. Um, and it's available through the um, Roman and Littlefield um, publishers. Um, it's R-O-W-M-A-N and, and Littlefield. Um, and I think it's you know, certainly available in bookstores, and it's also available um, at the usual places, um, places on the web, and including the actual you know, Roman and Littlefield website. Uh, and how can people get in, in touch with you if they're interested? Um, they probably via email. It's uh, M-A-L-B-A-N-E-S-E at C-H-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E dot org. Thank you very much, and have a great week, everyone. And thank you, Dr. Albanese. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.